So here we are again. We're going to be studying the Bible today. Uh, we're going to look at a story that's 3,000 years old. Why? The, the, the reason that the Bible has so much power is because it teaches us how to live. And the reason someone in the 21st century can read a story that happened 1,000 years B.C. is because God hasn't changed and men haven't changed. Still bent, pretty much doing the same kinds of sins. They just have different names attached to them, different personalities. And in the style that Samuel has in his writing, or who wrote Samuel, it's, it's so clear as he presents contrasting views of success and failure. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at three stories rather quickly. And we're going to look at a couple of the themes that Samuel uses quite often in the, in the series, in the two books of Samuel, and that is authority, the use and abuse of authority, and faith itself. When we talk about authority, we're talking about, well, this is the monarchy. It's the introduction of the monarchy, and there's a king, and when the king tells you to do something, you have to do it. And so it's, we're going to talk about what that means, to have authority and, uh, and how it can influence a person's worldview and how to, later on in chapters, much later on, it's, we're going to look at how to submit to authority. So when we, when we think about authority now, since we're not under a monarchy, if you wouldn't mind thinking about maybe any kind of power or, or position that you might have as, you know, husband or wife or as a parent of children, as a coworker, as a coach, a teacher, honestly, I think as an older sibling, you have some authority and some power. And let's look at how we can use that appropriately. It's given to us by God and, and use it to express, express our faith. Besides authority that's, that uh, is prominent throughout Samuel, there's also there, uh, authority, there's also faith, excuse me, there's also faith. And the, the idea in faith is this, this description of how to live, what living by faith looks like, what it looks like when it's successful and what failure looks like. Um, in, in the context of faith, it means trusting. There's a passive and there's an active faith in my view. Uh, passive faith is kind of quiet. It's the, it's the view that you realize that every breath that you take is a gift from God and you're kind of living, trusting that. And usually the symptoms of a passive faith are generosity and, and gratitude. It, it just kind of happens because you're living with this passive, quiet faith. Samuel is going to be talking a lot about an active faith, a loud faith, a faith where you're going to have to trust in the bigness of God showing up and only God can get you out of the situations many times that he got you into. And we have to learn to do that as well. We want to learn how to live in the context of faithful living with the fear that happens in active, loud faith living. We're going to look at three stories today. We're going to survey them. We're going to look at how Saul is losing desperately in those areas of faith and authority and how we might learn from his failure, but also the couple of success stories that we'll find. We're in chapter, actually, I think chapter 13 really, but it starts, in our first story, starts with Saul's faithlessness. And it actually starts in chapter 10, verse 8. Let me read this for you. When Samuel says to the new king Saul, go ahead of me to Gilgal. Okay, and I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what to do. Wait for me at Gilgal. This is exploding with context and meaning, so it's probably lost for most of us. Let me explain. Gilgal is base station when 
Joshua came into the promised land for the first time, before there was a single combat or battle before Jericho, they came to a place that was then named Gilgal. And all the men that had not been circumcised in their 40 years of wilderness wanderings, they did that. It was a new beginning is the idea. And then, then they had a Passover. And then it, and it says these very words, the very next day, the very next day at that first Passover in Gilgal, they, the manna stopped and they ate from the fruit of the promised land. They ate from the fruit of the promised land. So it, the idea is we're starting a whole new epic, a whole new era. And so wait for me at Gilgal. This is how it all started. It'd be, if we said this in our country, we'd say, meet me at Lexington. Don't cross that bridge at Concord until I get there. You see? So, and, and, and listen, Saul, as being a good Jewish person, he would know kind of the deeper meanings of the metaphor, meet me in Gilgal. Uh, uh, there, there's a pattern of, of how God works. And, so, and, he's, and he's kind of tipping his hand at that pattern. Did you, if, did you, if you saw um, Back to the Future, you remember? You saw the first one, you liked it, and then the second one and the third one, you realized, wait a minute, these were actually the same movie, just using different, like, you know, eras. Well, there, there's a lot of that that's happening with meet you at Gilgal. Meet you at Gilgal, it's it's going to be like Moses at the Red Sea. You're going to be backed up and threatened. Wait and watch. Meet me at Gilgal. It's Joshua at Gilgal where it says there's a new beginning starting. Gideon and the 300. Don't worry about the odds. I'll take care of this. Just bring, I don't know, some tambourines. You're going to need those. Wait for me at Gilgal. And so that's what's happened. That's the context of this. And this is what happens in chapter 13 now. Verse 5, the Philistines assembled to fight Israel. 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, soldiers so numerous they were like the sands on the seashore. And what happens to the Jewish soldiers? They start running. It says they go into the bushes. They go into cisterns. One group of people just run and swim the river. They swim across the Jordan River. They're out of there. So clearly there's a panic going on. And this is what Saul says. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all of the troops that were with him were quaking with fear. Living by faith means living with fear. Living by faith means living with fear. And the whole mood of this, by showing you how many soldiers the bad guys have and how his soldiers are running for it, are to present to you a mood. Feel like Moses felt at the Red Sea. Feel like Joshua felt when he's starting all new. Feel like Gideon when a lot of the troops were leading, leaving. That's, that's it. That's it. This is going to be really a great God story. And here's how it happens. So in verse 8, he waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. Even more of them were scattering. And so verse 9, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up those burnt offerings. This was not impatience. If it was impatience, he would have merely said, okay, blow the horn, let's go to war. This was sacrilege. The king is doing what only the priest can do. And so the, he has a whole value system it, that is inappropriate. He, he's disrespecting the very sacred things of God. And, and no sooner does he light that fire for the sacrifices that Samuel shows up and he says this in verse 11, what have you done? That's the sentence right out of the voice of God after Cain kills Abel. What have you done? Oh, no. 
And he explains himself, I, I thought, you know, now that the Philistines are coming down against me at Gilgal and I, and, I, and I have sought, and I had not sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. What was Saul thinking? Like, what's, go- what's going on in his head? How does his math work? Well, he was looking at the odds, and the odds were getting worse and worse, so he thought it'd be better to have good odds, right, than to obey the commandments of Samuel. He was betting and hoping in the odds, the odds were getting worse, so he did it. He has this value that if we can just get the, you know, the spiritual stuff, you know, kind of done, then we can move on to the real stuff and get this war going. Can we just like pray a little prayer thing like this fire? Can we go? I mean, the priest didn't hear, so I'll just do the priest things. I had to seek the Lord's favor, just saying, seeking the Lord's favor by disobeying a direct command and then doing something sacrilegious is not going to get the Lord's favor. That is not the way to do it. But, but here's the, kind of the, the summary of his thinking. He did not see himself as a king that was being used by God. He saw himself as a king using God. You hear the difference? He he did not see himself as someone specifically chosen by God, and he was, so that God would use him and move him and to cause God's will to be done. He saw himself as a king that would use God. And I gotta, here's how we here's how we rub this lamp. We start this fire, we get these offerings going, and then we can get going. How about you? How about you? Do you feel like you're using God, or do you feel like God is using you? Are you working your plan, asking for reinforcements, or are you working God's plan, expecting him to show up and do miraculous things because he would want to because it's his will, right? You know, people will say, yeah, we prayed about it, and then we signed the contract, but when you prayed about it, were you praying about it, like listening because he could say no, or like praying about it because done, we prayed about it. Now let's go on. Let's make a rash decision real quick, but we prayed about it first. We talked to a couple friends, told them some of the things they needed to know to give us advice. Saul was no Moses. He was no Joshua. He was no Gideon. He was just, just a secular guy, expected to do a faith-filled event. And here's what happened. It was the fear that did it to him. God was, through Samuel, was asking him to live by faith, and when he saw the odds and the people scattering, he became afraid, right? And that caused him to panic, and that caused him to compromise. Somewhere in his, like, in his thinking, he, he thought, if I'm going to live a faith-filled life, it shouldn't be fear-filled. And once it got fear-filled, I got to do what I got to do, rub the lamp. And I'm here to tell you, A faith-filled life is not one that is absent of fear. It is not one that is absent of confusion. As a matter of fact, I will say this, that living by faith, the act of faith, the loud one, it's living with fear. It's living with confusion. That's what it it means to live by faith, is to have this X factor where only God could get you out of the trouble, hopefully, that he got you into. And that's So fear is not to be an abnormality, but a normality in a faith-filled life. In other words, 
maybe we should expect it and, and learn, to, learn to like it. I don't know if we can learn to like it, like broccoli or something, you know, like, hey, maybe it's good for us. But we shouldn't be surprised by it because obedience is defined by faith that transcends the fear. Obedience is living with a faith and making choices that actually transcend that fear. Saul fails here because he thinks that he's a king that's going to use God and that his life should not have fear involved in that. And when it does, he'll do whatever he has to do. That's story one. Story two is a contrasting story of what could have happened. Because Samuel loves to do this in, in this writing, I've got a bad guy, now I'm going to be a good guy. I've got a villain, and now I'm going to do a hero. And oddly enough, the hero of this story is Saul's very own son, his firstborn. His name is Jonathan. And Jonathan is going to do and think the way the king should have thought in the first place. The next story is about faith. Here's the introduction of these characters. It's in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. Chapter 1 says, Jonathan is with his equipment keeper, right, his armor bearer, and he says, look at those Philistines on that other ridge. You want to go over there and pick a fight? That's what Jonathan's doing. It says, meanwhile, Saul is in Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, kind of not knowing what to do, indecisive. Then we go back to Jonathan in verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, hey, come, let's go over to the, outpo the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving us, whether by many or by few. That sentence, if that sentence defines a man, it defines Jonathan. Look at that. This is the way Jonathan thinks, okay? First of all, about the greatness of God, okay? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. It's about the great bigness of God. He doesn't work with the odds and saying the odds are in our favor because he knows the odds don't matter when God shows up. It's like God could win this war with a jar full of mosquitoes. Okay? So, it, so, he's, so he's, he's got this all-powerful God that's still interjecting himself in creation. And then he says, and then he's humble about it. He goes, perhaps, you know, you know, who knows? Hey, what do you say we go over there? And maybe he, maybe he does. Okay, do you understand with maybe he doesn't where that leads? We go over there, perhaps. Well, he didn't. Now we're dead. But look, I, this is a guy God wants, you know, to use in great ways. This is my favorite story in the Old Testament. This is my favorite passage. I read this in my 20s, and I said, I want to be a perhaps guy. That's what I want to be. I want to be a perhaps guy. As a matter of fact, we have this on our wall in our living room because I walk by that and go, he's not limited by many or by few. Perhaps. Just perhaps. So here's where the, stary, stary, excuse me, the story gets good. Player two has entered the game. Okay? God Almighty, he's showing up now. The Lord of the hosts, he's come to show off. Here's what happens. In the first attack, Jonathan and the armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about a half an acre. The size of the fight is showing us it was a close quarter combat, and it was awesome. Next verse. And panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and in the field and those on the outposts and those in the raiding parties. Everybody's in panic, and the ground even shook. It was because of the panic it was sent by the Lord. Now, back under a pomegranate tree in Gibeah, 
Saul's over there, and he realizes this is what the passage says. The mayhem and confusion in the Philistine camp grew to the point where it increased more and more. It was so loud. So Saul ends up showing up to the battle finally, and his guys are pretty much have their hands on their hips going, what is happening here? In verse 20, and then Saul and his men uh, assembled and, and went to the battle, and they saw the Philistines in total confusion striking each other with swords. They don't even, <laughs> that's why their hands are on their hips going, uh, let's just wait until they all kill each other. The point is, this is what was supposed to have the first time. If he'd have waited, if he would have waited on Samuel, but he didn't. His son knew how to do it. And look how this is the way it was supposed to be. Verse 23, and so Yahweh rescued Israel that day in the battle that moved beyond, even beyond Beth-Avon. Isn't that a great story? We have this comparison and contrast between faithlessness and faithfulness, and they lived happily ever after. This is a great story. Way to go, Jonathan. Nope. The author's going to contrast again and show the foolishness of Saul because somehow in the middle of this battle, he still is able to make it all about him. And in this section, we're going to see what's called a rash vow. It's an abuse of authority. Here's what happens in verse 24. Now, the Israelites were distressed that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath saying, cursed is everyone who eats food before the evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops had tasted food all day. Okay, so look at how personal it is. Look at the pronouns here. Before I have avenged myself on my enemies. This war is all about Saul in Saul's universe. And he does this vow, and keep in mind, this is a monarchy, and whatever the king says, no matter how dumb it is, they all have to obey this. And he is, at this point, the, the author's wanting us to see that he's getting drunk with pride, making rash promises and orders, and no one can do otherwise. And it's expensive. Not only is it, you know, insane, but it's, in, it's expensive. And now he's going to just total how much this rash vow costs. First, it's going to cost them the total victory. They won the battle. They could have won the war. Here's how we find that out. Jonathan wasn't there for the rash vow. You know why? He was busy killing Philistines. He was busy out after they're pushing the envelope on this and starting this combat. And so since he doesn't know about the vow, he's chasing the bad guys through the woods, sees some honey laying on the ground, you know, dips down, grabs some, puts some in his mouth so he can keep running and killing Philistines. And then he finds out of his dad's harsh vow, and he, he's embarrassed for his father's sake. Verse 29, Jonathan said, my father has made trouble for all the country. See how my eyes have brightened when I tasted just this little bit of honey? How much better it would have been if the men would have been able to eat some of the plunder they took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines been even greater? Yeah. Yeah, that's how much a rash vow costs. That's what happens when you get so pride, proud and use your authority recklessly. Wait, don't put your checkbooks away. This costs more still. Now the men are going to sin because of this harsh vow. Verse 31, that evening, finally, the battle's over. After the Israelites had struck down the Philistines, they were exhausted. And they pounced on the plunder, taking the sheep and the cattle and the calves, and they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Okay. And someone said to Saul, Saul, look, look, the men are sinning against Jehovah by eating the meat when it still has blood in it. 
Okay, let's back up a little bit about this blood thing, okay? Uh, Jews then and even today can't eat meat, medium rare or below. They're supposed to eat it well done, okay? Another reason, bacon and that, why you don't want to do this. No? No one likes medium rare? Okay, fine. I like my meat medium rare. So the point is, these guys are so tired, exhausted, and famished, they're, they're butchering the meat, throwing it on the fire, but not long enough to cook all the blood out of it, and they're eating it anyway. So now the whole army is in a, is in a state of sin, and, and it's all because of Saul's rash vow. It's because of his stupid declaration. It costs them maybe the war instead of just a battle. It costs them these men and, and their sinfulness. Wait, there's still more. It nearly cost Jonathan his life. Somehow, in a, in a, in a strange way, uh, Saul finds out that there's sin in the camp, and he finds out it is his very son, Jonathan, and confronts him. And so Saul says to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan said, look, I tasted a little honey, and now I'm supposed to die? This will be the third time Saul will pronounce this declaration. And Saul said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, that if you do not die, Jonathan. Really? And he had every intention of taking the life of his firstborn son, but the entire army stood between Saul and Jonathan. Next verse, but the men said to Saul, should Jonathan die? He was the one who brought about this great deliverance in Israel. Never. As surely as the Lord lives, we're going to play that line too, not a hair on his head will fall on the ground, for he did this today with God's help. And so the army rescues uh, Jonathan from Saul. Here's the point. It's about abuse of authority. It's about making this rash vow. Why did he say it in the first place? Pride. Because he could. And so he did. He made the war about him and about his revenge and all that stuff, and so he could. So here's another question. You, you, you say something stupid out loud, and your subordinates hear it. Why don't you take it back? pride. It would have been easy for him to say, no, you know what? But he three times says this rash vow. And because he, what's happened here is he's gotten this authority. He was a humble man when he started, and it's, it's swelling his soul. And with each bite, it's, he's getting stronger in his, in his arrogance and his egocentricity. And he's not giving way. And now it's costing so much, but he won't stop. He won't stop. What is it? How easy is it for you and I to be a bully? How hard is it for you or I to say we're sorry? I mean, some, sometimes that's the whole reason they do mean girls about every four years is because it happens sometimes to young ladies and they get a little bit of power, social power, and what do they use their power for? To crush other girls, right? Some people never grow out of mean girls. Here's the point. In your place of authority, your place of power, your place of influence, if you can't apologize to the subordinates, you're abusing power. You're misusing authority. You're, you're not using it to serve. You're using it to be served. And, and, and listen, friends, if, in the context, just in parenting, your children know when you make a harsh vow or say something really ridiculous and wrong. And so what you're actually teaching them to do is someday you'll have power and someday you'll never be wrong. Someday you won't ever have to admit to this. 
Or you could show them the use, appropriate use of authority and power and say, you know what? That was a dumb thing to say. It was pride that motivated me. Please forgive me. How do I make this right? Right? That's, that's the second lesson. First lesson was all about his faithlessness. The second was about abuse of power. The third one is the scariest story of all. It's about the power of pride. It's about how pride literally changes your view of the world. It affects all of your senses. It affects what you see and how you hear or if you even can hear. It's amazing the demonstration of what's going to take place here in 1 Samuel 15 that Saul is completely confused because his pride is filtering the words that he, he can't hear. To understand the story, you have to first understand the Amalekites. The Amalekites were a tribal group that were like the hyenas of the day. They, they were the bottom feeders. And they were uh, excessively cruel and had been attacking Israel since her inception when she was birthed coming out of Egypt, when she was very young and vulnerable. And it was these Amalekites that were killing the the stragglers from behind. There have been multiple conversations and confrontations with them. Ultimately, later in Esther, it's Amalekites that want to cause genocide for all the Jews to be destroyed. So in this context, God is saying, we're going to deal with these Amalekites. All right? You need to know that. Listen to how authoritative this is that what, of what Saul will hear from Samuel. Verse 1 of chapter 15. Samuel said to Saul, Look, I'm the one that Jehovah sent, anointing you as king over the people of Israel. So listen now to the message from God. Okay? Listen. Verse 2. This is what God Almighty, the Lord of the army, says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now you go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. And so Saul goes after the Amalekites and chases them all the way to the eastern border of Egypt. Job well done. No. Verse 8. And Saul took Agag, the king of the Malachites, and kept him alive. And all of, his, uh, all of his people, those he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle. Everything that was good, they kept that. Uh, these, they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything else that they despised and that was weak, they totally destroyed those. So they, they destroyed everything completely, totally as long as it wasn't any good. Do you understand? They're redefining totally and completely. And he can do that because he has grown to the place where he's going to use all of his power and authority as king to his own personal gain. He's going to love this. That's what's happening here is two things. He's letting his soldiers keep the good meat, and he's going to keep Agag. He lets the soldiers do what they want to do so that they'll like him. He's keeping Agag because back in the day, Keeping the other king that you defeated was a trophy. So it's all about Saul again. And I want you to see that um, God regrets making Saul the king. He talks to Samuel about it. Samuel cries all night about it. Wakes up the next morning, puffy eyes from tears. And verse 12, early the next morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. And and, and, And he was told Saul had gone to Carmel. And he went there to set up a monument in his own honor and, and then turned to go to Gilgal. So what's the first thing Saul does after winning this war? I think I'll build a statue of me. Then he goes to Gilgal. 
As we go through this passage right now, I want you to look at how his pride has gotten to the point where he's redefined right and wrong according to him. He's an exceptional person, and so he doesn't have to follow the rules other people's do. And so he's going to justify his actions. He's going to shift blame whenever that's necessary. When he's caught red-handed, he's going to sprinkle a little Jesus juice on it and say, it was for spiritual reasons that I didn't have to obey. But the, the bigger part of this whole thing is, is, is he thinks his way is better than God's way, so it makes sense. He's never going to repent because he doesn't think he should. I want you to hear all that because in verse 13, Samuel reached out to Saul, and then Saul said, the Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. And, and in true sarcasm, Samuel says, I can't hear you. There's too many cows and sheep making noise. And Saul goes, oh, right, the cows and the sheep, right. So he says, oh, uh, the soldiers, they brought them from the Amalekites. Uh, they spared the best sheep and the cattle to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. But everything else, we totally, we totally destroyed all the rest. See how he sprinkled a little spiritual stuff on here? We're not going to obey so we can use it for spiritual purposes. We're a little bit different. He's defining total obedience as total obedience to what he wants to obey. And so Samuel interrupts and says, enough. Samuel said to Saul, let me tell you what the Lord has told me last night. And Saul's like, sure, tell me. He can't hear. And so Samuel says, look, although you were once a very small in your own eyes and did not come from, uh, did not become the head of the tribe of Israel, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And he sent you on this mission saying, go and completely destroy the wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you've completely wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Now, when you hear Saul's response, you can hear he can't hear that he's wrong. He can't even hear that he's so proud. It's made him deaf. See how it's, focused, it's changed his whole like, perception of life? Verse 20, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites, and I brought back Agag, their king. How can you say that in the same sentence? I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back King Agag. Have you ever seen that meme? I, I think that word you're using is not, you know, the definition of the word you're using. Completely. You completely did obey, but you still have this king. And the reason he's, oh, let me keep reading. I don't know. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle for the plunder, but they did the, the best they devoted to, to God in order to sacrifice them to Yahweh, your God, at Gilgal. Rejecting the standards, right? Projecting the blame. It's the woman you gave me. This is an old model, right? shifts the blame, uh, covers it in religion, but ultimately he is the standard of right and wrong. And so he, he can't understand this. And so when judgment comes, verse 22, and Samuel replied, does Yahweh delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as obedience, you know, obeying the voice of the Lord? It's better to obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of div div uh, divination, and arrogance is as evil as idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Here's, here's, here's kind of the theme, okay, for maybe all three stories, but certainly for this one. 
you, we, we need to see the power of pride in its ability to completely arrange our, our cognitive abilities to think and perceive life. When we are the center of the universe, we make sure everything we hear and perceive keeps us at the center of the universe. This is the power of this, of this pride. And I, I think the lesson, the takeaway here is we have got to be afraid of the Saul that's inside of us. There's a Saul inside of us. That's why he says arrogance is idolatry, right? This, this rebellion is, is, is like idolatry. And who's being idolized? Me. Me. And I make my ego the idol, and everything else is, is obeying me, even God. And, and, and how does this happen? It's when we, when we find ourselves committing sins motivated by pride, and we hear in the tenderness of our souls, the Spirit of God say, whoa. And then, then you hear, shh. No one's going to know. That's why you did what you did. Just, and it's like, ego grows a little bigger. Ego grows a little bigger. Ego grows a little bigger. And then it's idolatry. Then, then, it, then it affects your perception of reality. Then it affects your ability to communicate with people because you can only hear what you can endure to hear. And then you're Saul. The theme is don't be Saul and be afraid of this growing potential of pride in, in our lives. This high-handed sin that he's committed to, friends, if you, can, if you can commit a premeditated sin or have this kind of behavior and go to bed at night and sleep fine, look at the dashboard lights of your soul. You're way down the road called, you know, Saul Street. And God has arranged circumstances for you to be warned so that you would repent. That means turn around. Because when we look at Saul right here, this is the beginning of his end. He is completely cut from the tether of, of rational thinking. Okay, he is, he is a kite free from the burden of its string. And there is nothing that he will not be able to justify and make complete sense in his head. And so he's going he's gonna to enjoy some witchcraft later on. He's going to be involved in all kinds of idolatry. He's going to attempt to kill on multiple occasions David, the great giant killer, and his very own son he's going to throw a spear at. How does this end for him? Saul dies a very violent death, but he brings his sons along with him. So his three sons die a violent death. All four of them are dismembered and hung on the outside wall of an enemy city. It started small. He loved the power. He didn't think he was ever wrong. And this is where it goes. Fear Saul. He's in us, friends. He needs to be tamed. He's not to be enjoyed. Here's how it ends. Verse 30, Saul replied, I have sinned. It is, I have sinned. Please honor me before the soldiers before the elders of my people and before Israel, come back with me that I might worship the Lord your God. He says he's sorry. Please make me look good in front of everyone else. There's a difference between an apology and a confession and repentance. Apology and confessions are letters going out, hugs, tears, all that. What's repentance? 
Are you going to change? Are you going to take responsibility? Is there something that you didn't do that you need to do? So all, he's, he's saying all these things. I don't want you to be uh, misunderstood or, or, I guess, tricked by his vocabulary. Because here's what Samuel does. Samuel says, oh, you're sorry, and you want to look good. What was the problem? What was disobedience? Where is King Agag? Bring me the king of the Amalekites. And the king of the Amalekites stands before Samuel. He thinks he's going to live through this. This is what the passage says. As Samuel says to him, as, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. That is one of the most misunfortunate, mis, misfortunate translations that you'll find in the New International Version because where it says it put, it put Agag to death, the real translation literally is it hewed him to pieces. Do you picture the violence in this? Saul says he's sorry, make me look good, doesn't want to repent. Samuel says, bring me that king of the Amalekites. I'll show you what was supposed to be done the first time. Chops him up in pieces. There's violent blood flying everywhere. Now it's a Scorsese movie. Okay? In one of the films that is about the United Kingdom period, they have Samuel throw the head of Agag in the lap of Saul. And Saul is right, violently reacting to this, as he should. But the bigger idea is this is what it looks like. This is what obedience looks like. You're no longer the king. Your dynasty is over. We're done. And here's how it ends. And Samuel left, and Saul went back to his pomegranate tree in uh, Gibeah, and they never saw each other again. Don't be Saul. Fear the power of pride. It cannot be tamed. Well, we have another story in our little story of Camelot that ends dark and hopeless with if you read the last sentence, it says, and God grieved that he made Saul the king, and Samuel mourned all night. So, what happens next? You're going to have to come next week. <laughs> Lord Jesus, um, I do lift up our souls to you with great fear and concern. That, well, I don't know. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer. The proud didn't hear a thing today, and the humble were beat up. So, Lord, I'd ask that you could break through the pride of, of men and women that have lost their mooring. They have cut the string to their souls, that they would see themselves as Saul, a desire to have intimacy with you and innocence regained. That maybe someone in their life could speak to them in the context of, of this, and they could hear this. Lord, I'd ask that you would bless us with the knowledge of the power of your spirit, that, sh that it, uh, it would have the power to change us if we let him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.